Reflections on T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 5 So the enigma of the fever chart is that... uh, the fever itself is not such a bad thing. It, it involves uh, the overcoming of the alien and diseased part. The fever is a necessary, necessary part of it, uh, so that uh, appetite and desire have a role to play in our spiritual recovery. He goes on, Our only health is the disease. And if we think of the disease as appetency or desire, it's a disease to the extent that it is habitual and compulsive and repetitive. Remember, Eliot had said that our appetency moves on meddled ways, predictable ways, leading finally to ennui. And it's the disease to the extent that our desire becomes uh, mimetic and conflictual. And, uh, and relies on an ardor that has nothing to do with the, object, the supposed object of our desire or longing, but has more to do eventually with the rival for it. Our only health is the disease. If the disease of desire and appetency, if we obey the dying nurse, and the dying nurse is the church, the comforter, the paraclete, the spirit, and its institutional embodiment, the church. Our our only health is the disease if, and it's a very big if, if we obey the dying nurse, whose constant care is not to please, but to remind of our and Adam's curse, and that to be restored, our sickness must grow worse. And if our sickness is appetency, let's say, It must grow worse. That is to say, the ache of desire must become the ache of longing. To be restored, our sickness must grow worse. The whole earth is our hospital, endowed by the ruined millionaire. The whole earth is our hospital, endowed by the ruined millionaire, wherein, if we do well, we shall die of the absolute paternal care that will not leave us, but prevents us everywhere. What he's saying is that uh, we're here, we're alive in order to recover from something. If we do well, we will die of the absolute paternal care that will not leave us, but prevents us everywhere. The ancient sense of, the older sense of prevent uh, means to go before. And it's used in the, in the Anglican, Anglican Book of Common Prayer Uh, to refer to grace. The prayer is that grace will prevent us and follow after us, go before us and come after us. So the absolute paternal care uh, prevents us, both in the sense, the older sense, of going before and being grace, but also in the the more familiar sense of uh, preventing us from acting, uh, from forgetting that we are suffering from Adam's curse. The chill ascends from feet to knees. The fever sings in mental wires. 
the fever, which is the, the appetency or desire, begins to sing in mental wires, and one begins to, some other things begin to stir. If to be warmed, then I must freeze and quake in frigid purgatorial fires, of which the flame is roses and the smoke is briars. If we're living in illusion, then disillusionment is a very good thing. What Eliot tells us is that there are phases in this disillusionment that there are times when one is unsettled and tormented by it. One feels haunted and fidgety. And that's because the smoke is briars. And then there, there's another moment. There's the moment of pure disappointment. Now that's the moment. And he says... The flame is roses, and the smoke is briars. On the periphery of it is when it's tormenting and haunting and confusing, and we're fidgeting around with it and wishing it were otherwise and trying to figure it out. But in the heart of it is pure disappointment. And he says the flame is roses. Now, consult your own experience and see if that isn't so. How, what a relief it is to find out that some other will is operating here other than my own because it has to be because I would have had it be otherwise. Dante is told in the Paradiso by the, by the souls in paradise, in his will is our peace. At the moment of pure disappointment is when the flame is roses, the purgatorial flame is roses. Simone Weil said, as humans, we cannot expect ever in this life to experience God's full presence because we're incapable of it. But we can occasionally experience his complete absence, and that's almost as good. Uh, pure disappointment. See? Not the stuff on the periphery, but the pure thing itself. The smoke is briars, but the flame is roses. The dripping blood our only drink, the bloody flesh our only food, in spite of which we like to think that we are sound, substantial flesh and blood. Now, let me quote Eliot uh, on Eliot here for a second. Eliot, in one of his essays, said, It is commonplace to observe that the meaning of a poem may wholly escape paraphrase. It is not quite so commonplace to observe that the meaning of a poem may be something larger than its author's conscious purpose and something remote from its origin. I use that to allow us to see these four lines as a stark and graphic expression of René Girard's anthropology. The dripping blood, our only drink, the bloody flesh, our only food, in spite of which we like to think that we are sound, substantial flesh and blood. That we are living, that we, that, that, that our, the world that is so familiar to us, if we, if we got to the heart of it, we would find is a cannibalistic world in a way that would, would shock us. That we 
We come together around our victims, as Girard says. I don't want to turn this into a Girardian reading of uh, Eliot, but I think there's, there's something interesting there. So now read the whole, the whole stanza. The dripping blood our only drink, the bloody flesh our only food, in spite of which we like to think that we are sound, substantial flesh and blood. Again, in spite of that, we call this Friday good. And that's the central paradox upon which the four quartets turned. Eliot wrote a letter to a friend in which he said, the fourth section of East Coker is the heart of the matter. The next section, section five, begins with the word so. So, here I am in the middle way. So means, I take it to mean, because of that. Because of what? Well, because of the crucifixion. Because of that. So, here I am in the middle way. Because of that, we are in the middle way. We live in the middle realm because of that. Here I am in the middle way, having had 20 years, 20 years largely wasted, years of l'entrat du guerre, between two wars, trying to learn to use words in every attempt is a wholly new start, a different kind of failure because one has only learned to get the better of words for the thing one no longer has to say or the way in which one is no longer disposed to say it. And so each venture is a new beginning, arrayed on the inarticulate with shabby equipment, always deteriorating in the general mess of imprecision of feeling, undisciplined squads of emotion. Eliot says so, referring to the crucifixion, I am living in the middle way. And then he complains about how it is he can't write poetry in the middle way. The problem is he's in the middle way, he's trying to write poetry. Poetry has always been written in the old way. How do you write poetry in the middle way? The middle way is the, is the transition from original participation to final participation. The poet is trying to do the work that comes from the, re from the crucifixion resurrection. How can you write poetry in the middle way? Owen Barfield says, Original participation fires the heart from a source outside itself. The images enliven the heart. So we go to the poetry, and the poetry comes into us and enlivens the heart. But, Barfield says, in final participation, since the death and resurrection, Barfield's reference, the heart is fired from within by the Christ. And it is for the heart to enliven the images. And Eliot is writing in the middle way. He's, he can't, the old poetic procedures aren't working anymore because he's trying to do something different. The truth and the meaning is in the reader's heart already. And Eliot is trying to free it, to bring it out, to tease it out, and not to provide it in the poetry. So his poetry is liturgical as much as it is literary. And what there is to conquer by strength and submission has already been discovered once or twice or several times by men whom one cannot hope to emulate. And there, excuse me, but there is no competition 
There is only the fight to recover what has been lost and found and lost again and again and now under conditions that seem unpropitious. But perhaps neither gain nor loss. For us there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. To recover, he said, it's all an act of recovering. There's nothing to be... It's been said. The truth is available. We have to just find ways of expressing it that reveal it to us. I remember hearing of a, of a, of a creative writing uh, a professor who said to his students, uh, go home, stay up all night, and come back in here tomorrow and tell me what Frost and Stevens meant. See? And don't go and try to figure out what you mean. See? What's going on in you? It's been said. You'll find out from them, and it'll come through you, and you'll find out again. It's all an act of recovery. It's an act of recovery. R.P. Blackmore, the literary critic, says, The mind is in a circle and it proceeds by analogy, and the mind needs to know nothing it does not already know, except the life in the words that it has not yet apprehended. It's all there. And Elliot goes on, Home is where one starts from. There's some references in here to Odysseus. We'll get to those in a minute. As we grow older, the world becomes stranger, the pattern more complicated of death, excuse me, of dead and living. Not the intense moment isolated with no before and after, but a lifetime burning in every moment. And not the lifetime of one man only, but of old stones that cannot be deciphered. That's that's the grave marker that one cannot recognize. It's a reference to the, to the communion of saints. Not one life, but the, 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 the mystical body. And not the intense moments, the episodic moments. Those are simply, as Preston said earlier, those are simply uh, little moments of reassurance that the flux has been conquered by something else. Here's the most beautiful passage in East Coker for me. There is a time for the evening under starlight, a time for the evening under lamplight, the evening with the photograph album. Love is most nearly itself when here and now cease to matter. Those two images, a time for evening under starlight and a time for evening under lamplight, the evening with the photograph album, are incomparable, I think. Under the starlight and under the lamplight with the photograph album, I realize, as General Lovenheim did before his mirror at the end of Babette's feast, how much of my life has consisted of missed opportunity. And even the seeming intensity of the wild time unseen in the wild strawberry were moments that were lived not, to use images we've used before, moments that were lived not at the meeting place but at the swap meet. That I missed the opportunity that the moment provided. But in that realization is the seed of another realization. 
that grace is infinite. And under starlight and lamplight with the photograph album, all of the missed opportunity, all of the moments lived at the swap meet can be converted into moments at the meeting place. Simone Weil said, the past, not when the imagination takes pleasure in it, but at the moment when some meeting calls up before us in its purity, is time colored with eternity. We are attached to the present, she says. We manufacture the future in our imagination. Only the past, when we do not remanufacture it, is pure reality. The next line is, love is most nearly itself when here and now cease to matter. Now, what really is here and now under starlight? The light that's hitting the retina started out 60 billion years ago towards you. So what's really here and now? And under the lamplight with the photograph album, what is here and now? That bittersweet ache in your heart as you turn from page to page? or the moment when the photograph was taken? Old men ought to be explorers. Here and there does not matter. Now, he just told us that here and now does not matter. Love discovers itself, becomes itself, when here and now does not matter. Here and there does not matter. He wants to say old men ought to be explorers. You see, Tennyson wrote his poem, Ulysses, and then Ulysses, Ulysses says how dull it is to pause to make an end. And he took his old cronies and made another adventure out of the tail end of his life. And, and Eliot would affirm that. But Eliot also knows very well that Dante put Ulysses in hell for doing just that, for, taking, for missing the point of his old age and taking all of that energy out onto a geographical adventure. And so Dante stuck him in hell for being a false counselor. Richard Wilbur has a poem in which he says, Where does that plenty dwell? I'd like to know which fathered poor desire, as Plato thought. Out on the real and endless waters go conquistador and stubborn argonaut. What do we do with this stirring, this... this uh, Desire for what? The desire for what? Wilbur says, where does that plenty dwell? I'd like to know which fathered poor desire. What do we do with it? Eliot says, old men ought to be explorers. And the next line is crucial. Here and there does not matter, not geographically. We must be still and still moving into another intensity for further union a deeper communion through the dark, cold, and empty desolation, the wave cry, the wind cry, the vast waters of the petrel and the porpoise. In my end is my beginning. In my end is my beginning. He finally earned those lines. 
I want to speak for a moment about what happens, what Elliot, I think, has done here in terms of the petrol and the porpoise. Old men ought to be explorers. Sebastian Moore says, In searching for this mysterious other, I do not look away from or outside the world, but beyond it. And this really means that in me the world looks beyond itself. I represent and experience the loneliness of all beings. In me the galaxies hunger for God. In me all the world craves his companionship. Old men ought to be explorers. And we ought to be moving into another intensity for a further union, a deeper communion. What if, what, what if we're here in order to love God? I mean, what if we were to discover that? That, that that's why we're here. Simon Weiss says the love of God is the unique source of all certainty. Well, Eliot says, um, he concludes that by saying one enters the dark, cold, and empty desolation. The wave cry, the wind cry, the vast waters of the petrol and the porpoise. The porpoise uh, presages in Shakespeare and elsewhere, presages the storm that the fishermen used to think when they saw the porpoises frolicking around then a storm was coming. The fisherman in Shakespeare's Pericles says, and they say they're half fish, half flesh, a plague on them. They never come, but I look to be washed. That is to say, a storm washes over me. But of course, being washed in the Christian world is to be baptized as well. The petrel is a small seabird that during a storm flies so close to the surface that it looks as though it's walking on the water, and therefore it gets its name, which means Little Peter. Okay. So Eliot has taken the plunge into the world of the, of the petrel and the porpoise. The porpoise has been, uh, historically was poorly distinguished from the dolphin until more recently. Ancients didn't make the distinction. There's a reference to the dolphin in the wasteland, and I think it's Christ's reference. And I want to use that, forget Eliot's intention here for a minute, I want to use that to try to make a conclusion about where Eliot is at the end of East Coker uh, with respect to this whole problem of appetency desire, longing, and love. In the wasteland, there is a scene of a woman sitting before her dressing table with all the ointments out there, and it's an elaborate, rich scene, a, a, a parody in a way of, a, of, the, of the scene, uh, first scene Cleopatra in Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra. It goes like this. In vials of ivory and colored glass unstoppered lurk her strange synthetic perfume, ungent, powdered, or liquid, troubled, confused, and drowned the sense in odors. 
stirred by the air that freshened from the window, these ascended in fattening the prolonged candle flame, flung their smoke into the lacquey area, stirring the pattern on the coffered ceiling. Huge sea wood fed with copper, burned green and orange, framed by the colored stone, in which sad light the carved dolphin swam. When we did this, when we took a look at this poetry earlier, I suggested that the carved dolphin is the crucifix. In which sad light the carved dolphin swam. Because the dolphin was the, considered the rescuer of sailors that were lost at sea. So Eliot has here now a, a plunge into the vast waters of the petrel and the porpoise, and I'm suggesting an identification for a moment with the porpoise and the dolphin. The porpoise, I think, is Christ, presaging a storm, which is also a washing, a baptism. And the petrel is the church, the Petrine institution. And when Eliot says, in my end is my beginning, I think he is referring to his entry into the Christian mysteries, his baptism. All of the withdrawing of the participation in the mythology, the, the contemporary mythology, was preliminary to entering into the mystery. And at the very end, he takes the plunge into the vast waters of the petrel and the porpoise. You just you feel that journey he begins now? Old men ought to be explorers. And what he is going to explore is the yet-to-be-fathomed Christian mysteries. And he plunges into them at the end of East Hook. The vast waters of the petrel and the porpoise. And I would like to relate it to, this, to, to the issue of desire which has come up in one way or another in these poems. As long as desire is being dealt with the way it was being dealt with uh, in the wasteland by, by the woman sitting before her, her dressing table, we have the in which sad light the carved dolphin swam. One last quote from Sebastian Moore. What we learn from the cross is the difference between liberation from desire, the latter equated with the insatiable self-promoting ego, and the liberation of desire from the chains of my customary way of being myself. So what Eliot is suggesting with, what, with, with his references to what appear to be uh, asceticism, be still, etc., is not the liberation from desire, because old men ought to be explorers. It's the liberation of desire from the chains of my customary way of being myself. And he enters in to the vast waters of the petrol and the porpoise. Well, 
what Elliot has done is um, set us up for the next quartet, the Dry Salvages, because it will then it will now explore the the whole watery realm uh, and uh, demand of us. Uh, spiritual discrimination in the watery realm. But I, to me, it's an absolutely stunning moment at the end of this poem when he enters the vast waters of the petrol and the porpoise. If we can equate, and I think we can equate, this term I've been using, sacramental consciousness, with what Owen Barfield calls final participation, then we can say of the former what Barfield said of the latter, that sacramental consciousness cannot be inculcated. It can only be awakened or aroused. What can be inculcated is an awareness of the possibility and the value of sacramental consciousness and of its significance in lives worthy of emulation. But the actual germination of sacramental consciousness is the result of grace. Beyond the inculcation of a favorable disposition toward it, a tradition that has sacramental awareness as its goal can try to provide environments in which the senses, the mind, the emotions are made ready for the moment of awakening. Liturgies are such environments fulfilling their spiritual calling with varying degrees of success. But one of those environments is Eliot's Four Quartets. Now, Dante had said, this, the, the difficult part in a way of what Dante had said in Canto II of Paradiso is, he said, turn back and make your way to your own coast. Do not commit yourself to the main deep, for losing me, all may perhaps be lost. Uh, there's something at risk in following beyond uh, this point uh, more than just uh, not getting it. That which arouses sacramental consciousness also and at the same time exposes existing adaptations as inadequate and delusional. Here's what Owen Barfield says about the awakening of final participation. And in this he uses, by the way, the, the uh, little story from the Gospel where Jesus says, uh, from, uh, to him who has, more will be given. To him who has much, more will be given. To him who has little, what little he has will be taken away from him. A very hard saying. Nobody's quite been able to figure it out. Uh, but Barfield paraphrases that in this passage. He says, iconoclasm is made possible by the seed of the Logos stirring within us. From him who hath not this seed of final participation, there shall be taken away even that residue of original participation that he hath. That is to say, there comes a point when that stirring, if that stirring starts to take place, existing forms of adaptation are going to be dissolved. And I think that's the root of Dante saying, turn back. If you're not ready, turn back. For losing me, all may perhaps be lost. I'm doing this off the cuff, but I guess if we were to paraphrase this, we would say, in terms that we've been using here, 
Iconoclasm is made possible by the seed of the Logos stirring within us. From him that hath not this seed of sacramental consciousness, there shall be taken away even that residue of superstitious, cultic, sacrificial consciousness that he hath. If the gravitational field of the sacrificial, cultic, um, superstitious, enculturated world dissolves, and one hasn't felt any pull whatsoever from the gravitational field of the mystery, you're lost. It is sacramental consciousness and not the empirical desert of cold fact that really offers an alternative to superstitious, cultic, and sacrificial consciousness. Once awakened, sacramental consciousness grows impatient with pointers that are not simultaneously manifestations of that towards which they point. That is, that it becomes iconoclastic. It grows impatient with any religious artifact, whether physical, literary, theological, or liturgical, that does not hint at the Incarnation. And that kind of iconoclasm is a necessary phase in religious life, personal or collective. Okay, now let's get finally, to dry salvages. Eliot offers a little a parenthetical commentary on the title. He says, The dry salvages, presumably, Le Trois Sauvages, is a small group of rocks with a beacon off the northeast coast of Cape Ann, Massachusetts. Salvages is pronounced to rhyme with assuages. Groner, colon, a whistling buoy, in parentheses. Now, Eliot, I think, learned his lesson with the wasteland about footnotes and that sort of thing. He is writing to an English audience. Uh, perhaps they know even less about the coast of Massachusetts than some of the rest of us. But if you think that Eliot has relapsed for a moment into the writing of little footnotes, guess again. This, in my estimation, I've seen no critics really that have treated it this way, but in my estimation, this parenthesis is very much part of this poem. And it sets a theme in motion which the whole poem resonates with. Notice, well, for, well where do we begin? A dry salvage is presumably the three savages the French means, the three savages, is a small group of rocks with a beacon. Now, we're getting mixed messages about this group of rocks. The three savages, a small group of rocks with a beacon, and then we find out that salvages rhymes with assuages. The dictionary tells us that assuages means to make, un, to, me, to make less burdensome to satisfy, to assuage one's thirst. And we know the word salvage means to rescue. Eliot spent his summers at Cape Ann and was a, an accomplished sailor and knew this area very well from land and from sea. And the three savages, which came to be called dry salvages, were a cluster of rocks, little ones, big ones, and then a place that was submerged called the flat ground. 
and they represented a very treacherous area for sailing, obviously. The Salvagias never went underwater, even high tide. That's why they're called the dry Salvagias. But notice we have, we know this about them. We have two associations with the dry Salvagias. One is the three savages, and the other is assuages. And the other, of course, is the word salvage, to save. It comes from the word for salvation. So before we can get into this poem, we have a very multifaceted uh, symbol going on. The three savages that most concern T.S. Eliot are the three classical fates. Atropos, who cuts the thread of life, Clothos, who spins the thread of life, and Lachesis, who measures the cloth of life. The three fates, I think, would be the three savages that uh, that haunt this poem, surely, because they have to do with time, and this po these these poems are about time. Uh, groaner is a t is a term for a a kind of a buoy that that uh, whistles when the wind grows blows through it. Again, you have a double message: the groaner is a whistling buoy. Now, whistling and groaning are two different things. So this, so we, the, the poem has set out all of this for us, and now it wants to pursue it. I do not know much about gods, but I think that the river is a strong brown god. Elliot grew up and lived in St. Louis. And... The Mississippi River was very much part of his early life. And this part of the poem takes its imagery from the Mississippi River. And what Eliot witnessed, let's remember, he was born in 1888. So what Eliot witnessed in terms of the Mississippi River and later other rivers, like the Thames, rivers play an important part in Eliot's poetry. I do not know much about gods, but I think that the river is a strong brown god, sullen, untamed, and intractable, patient to some degree, at first recognized as a frontier, useful, untrustworthy as a conveyor of commerce, then only a problem confronting the builder of bridges. Now, he's talking about humans trying, humans confronting the mystery of the river, the fact of the river, the intractable untameness of the river. And it is, at first, this river is a frontier that we can't cross as the Mississippi River was, in fact, the frontier in this country. West of the Mississippi was this, was this unknown wilderness. But we find there on the banks of the river that it's useful, untrustworthy, untrustworthy, but useful as a conveyor of commerce. 
also, over time, the Mississippi River becomes not just the frontier or the boundary, but the great waterway, the great commercial artery. Then, later, only a problem confronting the builder of bridges, because we're going west, we're going to cross that river, tame that river, whatever the river, not just the Mississippi. The first span of the river at, in, in St. Louis uh, was only built 14 years before Eliot's birth and was still regarded uh, in the very last part of the 19th century as, a, as, an, as an engineering marvel. The problem once solved, the brown god is almost forgotten by the dwellers in cities. Ever, however, implacable, keeping his seasons and rages, destroyer, reminder of what men choose to forget, unhonored, unpropitiated by worshippers of the machine, but waiting, watching and waiting. So it's, it's simply uh, uh, there, tolerating this presumption of, of uh, control or taming. And then this, these little four lines here uh, pick up on the river as, a, as the mystery of, if you will, of a chronological time. Uh, uh, the mystery of time's flux, time's flow. Time flows. The, the idea that time flows is, is, uh, derives from the idea that time flows in a linear way. This is a progressive flow. And these four lines pick it up. His rhythm, meaning the rhythm of the strong brown god, the river god, his rhythm was present in the nursery bedroom in infancy, in the rank Alanthus of the April dooryard. Alanthus is a tree of, a tr a tree of heaven. Okay. Isn't that an incredible reference to adolescence? Mm -hmm. The rank Alanthus in the April dooryard? <laughs> in the smell of grapes on the autumn table in the mature years, and in the evening circle in the winter gaslight. So the strong brown river god is, among other things, uh, the flux, time's flux, the flow of time. And chronological time has its disconcerting uh, features, so we, we, uh, we tame it. Remember, Eliot had ended East Coker by plunging into the vast, the, the vast waters of the petrel and the porpoise, the great Christian mystery, which he describes as the vast waters of the petrel and porpoise. Before Eliot can take us to the shore of the vast waters of the petrel and porpoise, he has to take care of this preliminary task. We've forgotten about the river god, for goodness sakes. So he's brought that up. And now he's going to take us uh, to Cape Ann. The river is within us. The sea is all about us. The sea is the land's edge also. The granite into which it reaches. The beaches where it tosses its hints of earlier and other creation. Now the thing about different about 
difference between the river and the sea is that nobody has presumed to try to throw a bridge over the sea. Uh, so the sea, uh, we can accommodate to it in some ways. We sail on it and fish on it and do commerce on it and exploit it. But as far as Eliot's concerned, it's an apt symbol for what he for the mystery because it's it's the abyss of time not the not the flux of time but the abyss of time and therefore the abyss of the mystery he takes us to the beaches and he says it, here it tosses up its hints of earlier and other creation and he tosses them up for us the starfish the hermit crab, the whale's backbone. And here we are as, uh, as visitors to this, to this beach, and we are bidden, I think, to look down and see the starfish and the hermit crab and the whale's backbone and scratch our heads and say, I wonder what this mystery is all about. Little hints of some other kind of life. Not only, I think it is hints of earlier forms of life, but not only earlier forms of life in terms of biological evolution, I think maybe earlier forms of life in terms of, uh, I think when he mentions the hermit crab, for instance, one thinks of, of uh, possibly of, of uh, patristic or medieval uh, spirituality. Uh, earlier forms of life, not only biologically, but socially, religiously. Now, the whale's backbone—that's uh, echoes with uh, with evolutionary and uh, religious connotations. These are these are little incoherent pieces of evidence on the shore of this mystery. The pools, also, where it offers to our curiosity, the more delicate algae and the sea anemone. One doesn't know what to make of these lines, except perhaps this uh, has—it's it's those it's those moments or moods when we are uh, of open to the mystery, and uh, suddenly there'll be a little pool where uh, to the, to the, del uh, uh, the delicate offerings to our curiosity. It tosses up our losses, and these I think are central to what he wants to do. Here's what else happens on the beach. It tosses up our losses. The torn seine, the seine is a, is a fishing net. The torn seine, the shattered lobster pot, the broken oar, and the gear of foreign dead men. So what does this mystery tell us? The abyss of time tell us. It throws up onto the shore... It tosses up our losses. It throws up onto the shore evidence of the futility of human enterprise. The torn seine, the shattered lobster pot. A lobster pot, you, you may know, is a, uh, is, a, is a trap. It's a lobster trap which uh, entices the lobster in 
through a kind of a funnel where the bait is. When the lobster gets in there, he can't get back out again. So just the, the shattered lobster pot as a reference to human, the, 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 the uh, futility of human enterprise is, is a fascinating. This is, right next to it is the broken oar has to do with thinking that we can uh, take charge of that mystery somehow. The, all of these are uh, what, what happens when people uh, have, have made the presumption that they can, that they can uh, t control the, the mystery. So what he's done is he's taken us to the shore and uh, sh showed us things on the beach which hint at a mystery, which is a mystery that is beyond us and sends hints our way and uh, many of the hints it sends our way give the strong message that human enterprise is uh, is will will be swallowed up in this abyss of mystery. And he says the sea has many voices, many gods, and many voices. But before he introduces us to the voices, the sea voices, he has one last thing to say, and he interrupts the flow there. with what may be in the final analysis my favorite line in all of T.S. Eliot. <laughs> the salt is on the briar rose, the fog is in the fir trees. Suddenly we get this subtle innuendo that the mystery represented by the sea is moving inland very subtly. The salt is on the briar rose. The fog is in the fir tree. I was uh, meditating, I guess you might call it, on these passages earlier in the week and really being taken by this line, the salt is on the briar rose, the fog is in the fir tree. As just, as, as just this incredible announcement to the modern world. I mean, if the modern world could hear that message from where Eliot is delivering it, what an amazing thing it would be. So I would, I, I would get up and I would go to the post office to get my mail, you know, and I would pass friends and say hello or whatever. And, and I kept wanting to go, I kept wanting to step over to somebody and say, the salt is on the briar rose, the fog is in the fir tree. Just to, just to, uh, and then you could say, well, now, this could be a litmus test to all of us, you know. I mean, if, if Elliot comes up to me in the middle of my kind of busyness and he says, the salt is on the briar rose, the fog is in the fir trees, one part of me will say, oh, God, don't tell me that. See? And another part of me will say, will say, thank God, it's about time. Well, we have that tremendous announcement. And then he goes back to what he raised just the line above, and that is the sea voices, the many sea voices. And he wants to attune us to the sea voices. The sea howl and the sea yelp are different voices, often together heard. Now, again, you get to... 
it's almost as though he, all the sea voices finally get resolved into these two sort of ultimate categories, the howl and the yelp. <laughs> well, I don't know if I would want to put it that un, in, in such an unqualified way, but just think of the difference between a howl and a yelp. I think of Maslow. You know, Maslow said you can measure a person by the, the level at which they're the, at which they're grumbling. Everybody grumbles. You know, he says you either have a you either have a low grumble, a high grumble, or a meta grumble. <laughs> you're, you're either bitching about the dogs, the, the next door neighbor's dog barking, or uh, you're worried about uh, the uh, you know the American foreign policy. That would be a high grumble compared to the low. Grumble. Or or you're or you're concerned about the you know the mystery of of evil in the world or something. I'm not sure how. Anyway, high, low grumbles, high grumbles, meta grumbles. So the sea, the two first two sea voices we get are the sea howl and the sea yelp. Are different voices often together heard? But I think the sea yelp and the sea howl may be connected chronologically. That is to say, we may be seeing a movement here in these following passages from a, as we did earlier in an earlier passage, from a from an immature to a mature, or from a child to an uh, old person's response to the mystery. The wine in the rigging, the menace and caress of wave that breaks on water, the distant rote in the granite teeth and the wailing warning from the approaching headland are all sea voices, and the heaving groaner rounded homewards. Now, there we are on our deathbeds, are we not? I mean, that's how I take that line. The heaving groaner rounded homewards. Except he adds the last little phrase, and the seagull. Under the oppression of the silent fog, the tolling bell measures time, not our time, rung by the unhurried groundswell. The groundswell is a great lifting of the sea from deep within. Measures time, not our time, rung by the unhurried groundswell, a time older than the time of chronometers. This is not, this is not linear time. This is not clock time. This is some other abyss of time. Older than time counted by anxious, worried women lying awake, calculating the future. This, his reference here is to uh, the, the wives of fishermen, Penelope being the classical example, the, the wives of men at sea, Penelope being the classical example. Older than time counted by anxious, worried women lying awake calculating the future, trying to unweave, as Penelope did, remember, trying to unweave, unwind, unravel, and piece together the past and the future between midnight and dawn. When the past is all deception, the future futureless. Before the morning watch, when time stops, and time is never ending. And the groundswell that is and was from the beginning clangs the bell. And the bell sends these shivers down our spine, as it, of course, must. 
but the question is, do we hear anything else there? Hopkins has a poem entitled, entitled The Leaden Echo and the Golden Echo. I, I want to read it with, uh, to the point that uh, one can hear this bell uh, and one can hear it echo it uh, in a leaden way and in a golden way, and both of them are, have a, a truth for us. How to keep? Is there any? Is there none such? Nowhere, known, some, bow or brooch or braid or brace, lace, latch or catch or key to keep? Back beauty, keep it. Beauty, beauty, beauty from vanishing away. Oh, there's none. No, 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 there's none. Be beginning to despair, to despair, 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 despair. And the golden echo begins, spare. There is one. Yes, I have one. When the thing we freely forfeit is kept with wonder a care, fonder a care kept than we could have kept it, kept far with fonder a care, and we should have lost it finer, fonder, a care kept, where kept. Do but tell us where kept, where, yonder. What high is that? We follow. Now we follow. Yonder. Yes, yonder, yonder, yonder. So Eliot said, The groundswell that is and was from the beginning clangs the bell. To announce that the world we have striven so to turn into a convenience is reverting into the inconvenient mystery it has always been. which reversion causes some part of us to feel terror and some other part of us to feel gratitude. Terror because it is utterly unknown and gratitude because it is real. Where is there an end of it? The soundless wailing the silent withering of autumn flowers, dropping their petals and remaining motionless. Where is there an end to the drifting wreckage, the prayer of the bone on the beach, the unprayable prayer at the calamitous annunciation? And then the calamitous annunciation is the annunciation made to Adam and Eve in the garden after... Uh, they have disobeyed, which is that you have to leave this place and you have to uh, suffer and labor and die. We live under the reign of death and under sentence of death. And that's the calamitous annunciation. And then he goes on, there is no end. The, the question he's asking, uh, it begins with, is the, what it, where is the end of it? Uh, and I, you, you see, the, he, he's being very subtly playful, I think. 
uh, where is the end of it? Meaning not so, meaning the, the 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 conclusion to it or the purpose of it. The we say uh, what's what's the end in the sense that we say, mean what's the goal? What, where what's to to use an Eliot term? What's the point of it? See, that's what we want to know. What's the point of it? And or is it pointless? See, if we played around with points, we would have we would say he's asking what's the point of it, and if it is pointless, what then? And then we then we could go back and and uh, remember that we translated that Greek word for sin, hamartia, as missing the point. So if I if I don't have any sense of the point of it then I'm obliged to, to uh, cover over the fact of death in order to carry on with my little projects. So where is the end of it? Now, just to anticipate where he's going to take us later on, just to take this word point, in Burnt Norton, Eliot had said, what might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always uh, present. Point there is a verb. Later he spoke of the still point of the turning world. There the point is a noun. And what he's, he's going to finally come to answer this question, where's the end of it, meaning what's the point of it, by saying that his final answer to that question is the incarnation. And the incarnation is the place where the, where the point as a verb and the point as a noun become the same thing. That which is pointing is that towards which it is pointing. That's the incarnation. There is no end but addition, the trailing consequence of further days and hours. While emotion takes to itself the emotionless years of living among the breakage of what was believed in as the most reliable and therefore the fittest for renunciation. Now, that's a mouthful, isn't it? The years of living among the, among the breakage of what was believed in as the most reliable and therefore the fittest for renunciation. There is the final addition. All we have is additions. It's that, it's that linear flow of time. Nothing else but addition. And then, of course, there's the final addition, the failing pride or resentment at failing powers the unattached devotion which might pass for devotionless in a drifting boat with a slow leakage, the silent listening to the undeniable clamor of the bell of the last annunciation. And that last annunciation, I think, is one's personal death, not the universal sentence of death that comes in the Garden of Eden with the calamitous enunciation. But when one is in a drifting boat with a slow leakage, listening to the undeniable clamor of the bell of the last enunciation, where is the end of them? The fisherman sailing into the wind's tail where the fog cowers. Now he's taking fishermen here as an example of us all. 
We cannot think of a time that is oceanless or of an ocean not littered with wastage or of a future that is not liable like the past to have no destination. We have to, he's he's, he's concerned about the fishermen, which is all of us. We have to think of them as forever bailing, setting and hauling, while the northeast lowers over shallow banks, unchanging and erosionless, or drawing their money, drying sails at dockage. We have to think of them that way. We have to think of them involved in ourselves and them, involved in the activities of getting the job done. Not, as he goes on to say, not as making a trip that will be unpayable for a haul that will not bear examination. They were obliged to, to adopt and adapt a mythology about what's going on. But he has he, he wants to break in on that and announce something else. There is no end of it. The voiceless wailing, no end to the withering of withered flowers, to the movement of pain that is painless and motionless, to the drift of the sea and the drifting wreckage, the bones' prayer to death is its God. Only the hardly, barely prayable prayer of the one Annunciation. And you will notice that this Annunciation is spelled with a capital A and is referred to as the One Annunciation. Now, we've had two other Annunciations, the Calamitous Annunciation and the Last Annunciation. And everything, not everything is, but most everything in us, tells us that, that, is, that those former two are utterly distinct from any that we might capitalize with an A. But Eliot says in, its, in his... In his uh, qualification, the prayer of the one Annunciation. There's only one. There's only one bell. There's only one Annunciation. And it has calamitous and final features to it. But there is, there is a golden echo to that bell as well as the leaden ones. The one Annunciation. And, there, and here, I think, he's referring, clearly, he's referring to the Annunciation story in the Gospel of Luke, in which Mary says in response to the angel, Be it done unto me according to thy will. And it's that response to the bell that changes the nature of our experience of it. Because Mary is responding to the invitation to participate in the Incarnation. And it means an act of self-surrender. Everything is co- accomplished by acts of consent. That's the, 
one of the strangest things about the Christian mystery is that the great accomplishments recommended by the Christian mysteries are accomplishments brought about by acts of consent. Be it done unto me according to thy will. Not my will, but thine be done. The world is changed by acts of consent. I don't know any more about making sense of that than you do, but I am amazed and fascinated by it. The other thing about this little, these lines we just quoted is that, as you can see, it's six uh, stanzas. It's a sestina. A sestina is a very complicated uh, poetic form in which the first line of each of the stanzas rhymes and the second line of each of the stanzas rhymes, and so on and so forth. And the first and last stanzas have, have not only the rhyming words, but the identical words at the end of the lines. So this is a poem which can be read uh, not only uh, uh, down the page, so to speak, well, how could, not only across the page, but down the page as well. For instance, get the feeling if I, I'm just going to go through these and quote the end rhymes in each, I'm going to start with the first line, but watch, watch the, the movement that takes place. Wailing, trailing, failing, sailing, bailing, wailing. Tells the whole story. Takes you from from birth to death. Next one. Flowers, hours, powers, cowers, lowers. Lowers means the, uh, an ominous, sullen something on the horizon. And flowers. Third line. Motionless, emotionless, devotionless, oceanless, erosionless, motionless. We could spend a whole session on any one of these little sequences. Wreckage, breakage, leakage, wastage, dockage, wreckage. Unprayable, reliable, undeniable, liable, not liable, unpayable, barely prayable. Annunciation, renunciation, annunciation, destination, examination, annunciation. It's just a wonderful thing what happens in those lines. 